Hey, everybody, Ted DiBiase, the Million Dollar Man, and you are listening to On Faith's Edge with Joe Taylor. And if you want to get your money's worth, you need to stay right here. Everybody's got a price for the Million Dollar Man. <laughs> Why make it more difficult than it has to be by putting it in 400 plus year old English? I have many respected friends who use the King James Version and uh, a few who defend it strongly. Yes, that was none other than Million Dollar Man himself, Mr. Ted DiBiase. Like I said last episode, I grew up in the 80s a huge wrestling fan, and talking to Ted was just a real, real treat for me. In episode 106, we talked about professional wrestling with Ted. We talked about his new documentary, The Price of Fame. We talked a lot about his faith and the relationship with his family. That's onfaithsedge.com slash 106. Onfaithsedge.com slash 106. Well, this is the 107th episode of On Faith's Edge. My name is Joe Taylor, recovering atheist and your servant in Jesus Christ. This is your place to hear conversations about God and living a life of faith in Jesus Christ. Man, the subject of today's talk with author Mark Ward is near and dear to my heart. It's frankly one of the reasons I almost never became a Christian. When I was transforming from atheist to a believer in God, one of the things that irritated the junk out of me was the different translations of the Bible and how very different they were. I'll bet I bought five different translations, King James Version, the New International Version, New Living Translation, a couple other obscure versions, just to try to figure this thing out. I spoke with pastors and deacons, Bible professors, and anyone else that would that would that would answer my questions. Honestly, I almost threw in the towel thinking if Christians can't get the text of their own holy book right, then what else are they screwing up about? And forget the King James Bible, frankly. I was if I was forced to read that thing, I'm absolutely done. Well, today's guest, author Mark Ward, has a PhD in New Testament interpretation. He's written textbooks on biblical worldview, and he is the author of Authorized. The Use and Misuse of the King James Bible. In our conversation, we go deep about the good, bad, and ugly on Bible translations, how we came to the modern translations, and what is the best Bible for you to read. Take us through how we, how we got to the modern translations of the Bible and their major differences. Christianity has always been a religion of the book following Judaism which is, of course, the parent very directly of Christianity. So before Jesus Christ was ever incarnated, the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek, which was the common language around the world, sort of like English is becoming or has become around the world, the language of commerce. And the apostles, the disciples, Jesus himself quoted this Septuagint, it's called, the Old Testament translation into Greek. So uh, when Jesus said, go and disciple the nations, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you, it was very natural for them to assume, and I think rightly, that included in that task was giving them all of the words that Jesus spoke, all of the words that the inspired apostles who wrote the Bible wrote down. And so from the very beginning of Christianity, we've had Bible translations. But skipping way forward into the future up till now, 
we have a technological age in which it's easier and cheaper to make Bible translations. And so there have been, there has been a proliferation of them in the last, boy, you know, 30, 40 years. And this is alarming to some people, but it's welcome to me. These multiple translations have been a big help to my Bible study. In what way? That's another great question. That's another huge question because I could go flip open my comparative study Bible, which has four different translations in it. And I could show you all the notes that I've been taking since I was 18 years old when I bought that thing with money I barely had. I, I looked at it and it said 50 bucks. And I did some calculations and realized that was a lot of money for me back then, <laughs> not having a job. So what I realized was growing up on the King James Version, which is beautiful and traditional, Nonetheless, there were many things that I wasn't understanding, in part because English has changed over time, and in part because whenever you say the same words, even the Pledge of Allegiance over and over since you're a kid, it, it, you, you'll have this experience, maybe you've had this, where you suddenly realize at age 32, oh my goodness, I did not realize what that meant. Well, that happened to me when I checked other Bible translations and suddenly started to see all these little things that I'd been missing all throughout the Bible, and I found that to be very enriching. How are there so many different types of Bibles? Aren't there different manuscripts that the Bibles that the that the Bible was was translated from and there's this big debate between the two manuscripts? I go into this in very minor detail in my book Authorized the Use and Misuse of the King James Bible because a lot of people who argue about this on the internet and what else is the internet for but arguing <laughs> a lot of them they want to make it an argument about Greek manuscripts. And I, I encourage people to step back and say, okay, if you're a Christian, has God called you to learn Koine Greek, the language of the New Testament? The great majority of Christians, I'm going to say 99.99% of them, of us, are not called. We're not given the opportunity to learn Koine Greek. And so if there are differences between ancient manuscripts uh, you know, copied down through the centuries of the New Testament, then we can't know that. You know, we have to take someone else's word for it. People who can't read Greek can't even look at the differences. And so I say, why should we be fighting about them? At the very least, we ought to recognize that this is a debate between authorities that, that people who can't read Greek should export to them. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And I, and I really like how you put that, the, that unless we, unless we're called to learn the original Greek, uh, as you as you put it, Koine is that correct? Yeah, that just means common Greek, yeah. common, common vernacular, common common Greek. Uh, then what is really what is the point, right? Yeah, I really think. I mean, the Bible has uh, two warnings in the Pauline epistles, the pastoral epistles, uh, about word fights. And I see that kind of thing all the time on the internet, quarreling, squabbling. And if you can just take, take a step back and realize that the arguments people have about Greek manuscripts can't be about Greek if they can't read it, you know, that can kind of let some of the air out of that big, hot, aired balloon um, and maybe cool things down a little bit, take us all back down to earth. And I encourage people in my book, yes, you want to be aware of these debates it's important that you know that they exist and, and you get a basic handle, a basic handle on them. But you're never going to solve that because scholars disagree. But I want to focus on something that the regular English speaker can understand easily. And that is that when you read the King James Version, this is a big point in my book. 
it is written in and translated into an English that is 400 plus years old that we just don't use anymore. And that's not a criticism of it. And it's not a criticism of us. Like we're dumb. You know, some people feel guilty because they feel like, well, I ought to be able to understand Shakespeare. And I say, no, you know, it's only the job of specialists to keep track of all the changes that have happened in English. We need the Bible in our English, not someone else's. To put our conversation in context, tell us about Authorized, the use and misuse of the King James Bible, why you wrote it, who it's for, and what readers can expect from the book. I care about Bible reading. I care about it for myself and for my family. It is an important, excessively important means of grace in my life and the lives of the people that I love in my family and in my church and, and all the rest of Christianity. And when I discovered that around 55% of the Bibles read today in America were King James Version Bibles, I was troubled because over the years I have come to realize how often I was missing things in the King James, though I grew up on it and prided myself in my ability to read it. And I think I do have a pretty good skill in it, if I do say so myself, having grown up on it and being a word nerd such as I am. I love English. Um, but my pride in my ability to read the King James as a kid was not an entirely good thing, in part because I was so wholly unaware of the many things that I was missing. And I just don't want people to miss those things. And I see a lot of arguments out in the Christian church about which Bible translation is best. And a lot of people rallying behind the King James Version and making it a source of division and anger. Um, I've run into, I'll just tell a quick story about that. I was a camp counselor at a Christian camp where we did use the King James Version. I was 18 or 19 at the time. And I had, I walked into my junior high campers arguing. Two of them were arguing. And I heard one of them say, that's an NIV, a new international version. You should burn that. And wow. I was just meeting these kids for the first time. And um, the I, I found out that both of them, were guests of the churches that had brought them that came from unchurched families and really had no idea what they were talking about. <laughs> and I thought, mm. why, you know, how is it that this kid who attends this church only briefly, I, I found out, he rides the bus, his parents don't even go, he's a sixth grader or something. Um, how is it he doesn't even know the very basics of the gospel, but he knows that every other version other than the King James Version is wicked and corrupt. And I, I feel jealous for young people like that who are being handed a Bible translation that there's just no way they're going to be able to understand it. I also did a lot of evangelistic ministry in rundown neighborhoods in Greenville, South Carolina, and in multiple different cultures there. I saw the same thing. I would teach a Bible verse. And I just could tell, I would ask them questions and I could tell they had no idea what they were memorizing. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. You know, that's difficult enough in the modern translations. Why make it more difficult than it has to be by putting it in 400 plus year old English? But I have many respected friends who use the King James Version and 
uh, a few who defend it strongly. And I wanted to acknowledge in my book that there are valuable things we're losing as we lose this common standard Bible translation. So I start the book that way. But then throughout the rest of the book, I display just how language change over the past 400 years has affected modern reading of the King James Version. I evaluate the arguments of people who say the King James is plenty readable. They'll say, for example, that computer uh, readability tests such as the Flesch-Kincaid analysis that you can use in WordPerfect or Microsoft Word um, and now online, those, those tests supposedly show that the King James is you know, a fourth grade or sixth grade reading level, whereas the modern translations are eighth grade or tenth grade or something. And I went and figured out what was going wrong in their use of these tests, namely that the, these tests are not designed to work on archaic English. They're not actually reading the words at all. They're just counting their length, and they're basically saying longer words and longer sentences are harder. Well, that might be true, but it's not, uh, that can't take into account words we don't even know. And then the key concept of my book that I really zeroed in on, and I've never heard any of the King James-only folks respond to this, and even after my book is out, they, they're not responding to it. I'm curious to know what they'll say, is the concept not of dead words, words we know we don't know, but false friends, words we don't know we don't know. So I'm going to quiz you here. Um, at 1 Kings 18.21, you, know, you, you said that you were an atheist. The King James Version was apparently not part of your upbringing. Is that true? It was not. Okay. So it was part of mine, and this is a verse that I grew up hearing to the point where I memorized it just from having heard it so often. Elijah is on, is on Mount Carmel, and he is uh, in a contest with the priests of Baal, and he's telling the Israelites, you, you know, you need to serve the Lord and not Baal. So he's, he says to them, how long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, then follow him. But if Baal be God, then follow him. That word halt, what would you, just being a regular speaker of American English, what would you think that that would mean? Stop. Yeah. Yeah. Stop. Cease. Stop. Cease. Right. Like halt. Who goes there? Right. Or traffic ground to a halt. So this is a word we still use. It's not dead. Um, but the uh, in that context, that's not what it means. And I came across this when I was reading a modern translation, and it said, how long will you go limping between two opinions? And I thought, wait a minute. That's not what that says. So I went and looked at the Hebrew, and sure enough, the word is limp. And then all of a sudden I realized, wait a minute, in the New Testament, in the King James Version, the, the translators have Jesus healing the halt and the blind. In other words, the lame, the limping, and the blind. And I realized, oh, when they said, how long halt ye between two opinions, that was their word for limp. But that word has changed its meaning over time. And I checked with dozens of educated people, highly educated people who know the Bible well, who grew up on the King James Version, and all but I think three of them got it wrong. One of them I think was lucky, and two of them are just total nerds who know everything, so that they don't count. <laughs> That's a false friend, because we read right past that, not realizing we don't understand what it means. So, you know, if someone's worried, thinking, oh no, you know, have I totally misunderstood the Bible because I've been reading the King James? I would say, no, no, you haven't. You're just missing a lot of little things like this. And if they say, well, I don't care, I, I, I'll miss those little things as long as I'm getting the big things, I think, well, that's a problem too. 
you know, I want to understand even the word pictures here. That's a, that's a picturesque one. He says, how long will you go limping back and forth between these two opinions? He's kind of mocking them. And I want to get little things like that when I read my Bible. So I wrote my book in order to, um, and yes, in a sense, combat King James onlyism, but as gently as possible, because I never say a single negative word about the decisions of the King James translators. I don't think they did wrong to use the word halt or the word commendeth in Romans 5, 8, another famous verse, and numerous others that I bring up in the book. I don't think they did wrong. Um, they couldn't predict the future of language, and we shouldn't be expected to keep up with its past. That's not our job. We need Bibles, as I've said in this interview now repeatedly, and to so many other interviewers and in articles, we need the Bible in our English. That's the upshot of the book. That's my burden. And so far, I've had a lot of positive response from people. Um, even people who disagree have been very gracious to me because I sought to go out of my way to be gracious to them. And it wasn't hard because I love them. I, I love all my brothers and sisters in Christ. And the only reason I'm writing about King James onlyism at all is because I want what's best for them. I want them to have the Bible in their English so they can get as much of the meaning that God has put in there as possible. This is refreshing because you're not anti King James, which is, no. which is a swing all the way to the other direction. And you are, you are solidly against uh, King James onlyism. Uh, that's right. That's obvious. What are the, some of the arguments uh, for King James onlyism? Uh, those that believe that King James, the King James Bible is the only true word of God. What are some of the problems with it? And what are some of the good points that they make about the King James Bible? I think it's very important. It's, it's wise and um, gracious of you to ask that question because it's very important for us to be able to state the positions of our quote-unquote opponents. And I put that in quotes because these are my brothers and sisters in Christ whom I love, and I have so many important agreements with them. It's very important for us to understand their view and put it in terms that they would accept. I would say that what's good about King James Onlyism and, and what they argue is that in religion, you got to be really careful not to shake things up too fast. Even Martin Luther at the Protestant Reformation, he realized, you know, he's shaking all of Europe, but he was very slow in individual churches to take away things that, you know, were not absolutely necessary to take away from the traditional practices that the people had used in the Roman Catholic Church. And I think the King James Only movement rightly sees that some people are confused and alarmed by the existence of so many Bible translations. It kind of looks, maybe to an outsider especially, like, hey, this group over here has their Bible translation, that, and they've made it say what they want it to say, and this group has their Bible translation, and they control that one. Well, that's not the case at all. Um, but one way to avoid that problem is just by sticking with one that everybody's agreed on for so long. So I, it's not actually bad, I don't think, that people value long-held unifying traditions. But in my book, I argue that that tradition has started to peter out for some good reasons. And the biggest one is that people can't understand the King James anymore. And I'm not saying they totally miss 100% of it. I'm saying that the, the misunderstandings are significant enough that it's time, beyond time, to look for an update, a revision, 
or a, a new translation. So that's what's good about the King James Only movement. But that also describes uh, initially why I am questioning it. Let's, let's dig a little deeper into what, what are some of the issues with, the, with King James Onlyism and what are, some, what are some of the very, very dangerous um, ramifications of King James Onlyism? I have many friends and acquaintances who are King James Only because in my high school years, I went to a King James Only church and Christian school, and I had a very positive experience. You know, every place is full of sinners, and if it weren't, it would be as soon as I got there because I'm a sinner. So no place is perfect, but I loved my teachers. They loved me, and quite a number of them are still at that school 20 years on. Uh, two of them read my book, and I talked with one at length, and he was very gracious. So I owe them a real debt. They were really trying to be faithful to Scripture. But the they themselves have a term for people who get real nasty about their King James Onlyism. And anybody who's been on the internet and seen King James Onlyism will recognize this phenomenon. They call it King James Ugly because some people just go off like trolls and are the worst sort of jerks about this view. And if I tried to um, argue with those folks, that would be an exercise in total frustration. And that would be like trying to play tug of war in a total mud pit. Just wouldn't work. But I tried, I, I find it easy to focus on the best representatives of this viewpoint. But you asked about the worst ones and the dangers. And the danger is, you know, Proverbs 6 says there are things that the Lord hates. And one of those things is those who sow discord among brothers. And I've seen this. I've seen just recently somebody, you know, message me saying that a new pastor has come to my church where I was a youth pastor, and he's insisting that I have to not only use the King James, but believe that it's the only acceptable English translation of the Bible, or I'm out of here. That's sowing discord among brothers. Mm. I've seen um, churches split. I've seen institutions and whole movements split over this. It is divisive. Now, the truth can be divisive, and that's what they would say. They would say, well, this is the truth, and so the truth divides. But I, my book argues it is not the truth, and it should be obvious. It really should be, because 1 Corinthians 14 is sufficiently clear in the King James Version Paul says that if you want to edify other people, you have to use intelligible words. And even the most extreme King James Onlyites, the ones who are saying that every other Bible translation out there is a corruption, a satanic perversion, you know, those people who are King James ugly and, and not in the mainstream of the King James Only movement, um, even they recognize that there are numerous words in the King James that we don't use anymore. Dead words, I call them, like beeves, bold, and beret, B-O-L-L-E-D for bold there, or uh, crisping pin or chambering. I mean, I could go on and on. And so some of them have produced Bible editions in which they have footnotes that give you the meanings of all these words. And I just, I'm shaking my head saying, if you're giving us the meaning in a footnote, why can't it go in the text? You know, is it really so corrupt to use the word broom instead of the word besom? But the King James Only movement is absolutely insistent. Even the mainstream, more reasonable ones who are godly people that I respect, they don't want to change a syllable 
because they feel safe. This is the translation that we can trust. And I can't trust all these other versions. I'm trying to change that, tell them that they ought to be able to trust. And it's the Bible itself, uh, especially in 1 Corinthians 14, but also other passages, which should lead them to look for a Bible translation in their own English. Mark, what would you say to somebody like me 20 years ago, or actually more than 20 years ago, who was an atheist? And once he came to a place, uh, once I came to a place uh, of believing that there may actually be a God, then I had to go on a search for what is the best representation for that God uh, that we have right now. And when I looked, one of the one of the stumbling blocks that I had to Christianity was these Bible translations. And my thought was, man, if these guys can't get their holy book right and agree on their holy book, then what direction can they possibly be headed? Uh, because I saw, you know, when you're doing research, I found some contradictions and people actually pointed out contradictions when they were arguing for, for, or against, uh, what about the contradictions in the different translations? I think one that stands out to me is, is, uh, acts eight thirty seven when it says, and Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. That's in the King James Bible. And that seems like a pretty significant verse, but it's completely omitted in modern translations. It's so interesting. I enjoy hearing this part of your story. I'd like to hear more. I need to, you need to link to me, um, uh, a podcast where you tell your own story. And I have heard that sort of question before mainly from the King James only folks. Um, but yeah, like Christopher Hitchens, a famous atheist who, as far as we know, died an atheist, though he was exploring Christianity, we're told. I read a book about that. Um, he made a similar comment in a really interesting Vanity Fair article that I quote in the book. In fact, my whole first chapter describes all the valuable things that we will lose as the King James Version loses its spot as the number one undisputed bestseller you know, that everybody uses. And one of those things is the trust that even non-Christians have in the Bible. And that, that sounds weird, but when there is only one available, then those quote-unquote contradictions aren't, gonna, aren't going to surface. But we have to deal with the world God actually gave us and the history that he has providentially superintended rather than the world that we wish we could have. And the simple fact is, without printing and without computers, there was no way to copy an a huge book, you know, a collection of 66 books like the Bible, without some minor copyist errors sneaking in. It, it's just humanly impossible to copy that much text without making some kind of mistake. Thankfully, we have so many manuscripts of the New Testament in particular, but also the Old Testament going back to the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know. Um, even before the time of Christ, that there's very little doubt about uh, anything significant. You know, there's basically two passages of any length where we're, we're uncertain. One is the story of the woman caught in adultery. Another is the so-called longer ending of Mark. And I could, I could say to God, God, why did you leave it this way? I mean, this makes it so hard for me to evangelize smart atheists because they can point to these difficulties that I've got. You know, but I'm just not going to do that. I'm going to accept the world that God gave us. And the King James only folks tend to say, this is such a big problem. We've got to pick one, pick one manuscript and make it the absolute be all and end all. 
and not do any what's called textual criticism, comparing the different manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. Um, but that can't work either, because there is no one manuscript to choose. They effectively choose the first printed Greek New Testament, but there are multiple editions of that. So, you know, all these minor differences between the various manuscripts, who's going to adjudicate them for us? I would say to that person, I'm just going to have to pray that the Lord would get a hold of that atheist heart, despite some of these, yes, initial difficulties. And that as a new believer comes into learning more and more about his or her faith, it would be really good for him or her if if this troubles, I'm just going to say him to save myself some time here, this troubles him to go and do some study, read my book, read um, other great introductions, take a course by Daniel Wallace on textual criticism. Um, But let me point out something that my book says that I think any pastor, you know, kind of shepherding uh, or evangelizing an atheist like you were should be able to point out. And that is, if you look at the differences between the different Greek manuscripts, it's not as if there's a huge party in the church of, you know, such and such denomination like the Methodists over here. And they use one set of manuscripts. And the Baptists use a different one that have Baptist beliefs. And the Presbyterians have Presbyterian manuscripts. No, they're all dealing with the same text. The differences are excessively minor, with a very few exceptions that aren't doctrinally significant. Uh, and another way to point this out would be if you go to systematic theologies, you know, the big thick books that uh, Christians use to describe their doctrine frequently, and most frequently, they will put Bible references there, John 3.16, you know, Matthew 8.37, whatever. And they won't specify which Bible translation you're supposed to look it up in. And in other words, they're assuming whatever Bible translation you use, it, it's, you use, it's going to say the same thing. And that's what I would say. There are differences, but they're minor, and they tend to be about nuances, and they tend to be based on they, they tend to be um, differences of translation, not of text. And the rare ones that are differences of underlying text, there are good Bible study resources out there that can explain those things, which we can talk about further. I've not seen anything between the translations that change the fundamental message of the Bible, the fundamental stories of the Old Testament, the the fundamental path to salvation, uh, the the message uh, of forgiveness and redemption and repentance uh, that Jesus offers. Uh, I've seen I see nothing in the in any of the translations that change that fundamental message. Dan Wallace, who is probably the premier evangelical scholar of textual criticism, this study of all the different ancient manuscripts and comparing them and trying to cull out copyist errors that were introduced over the centuries, he uses this illustration, which I think is fantastic. He said, you know, you, if you had a manuscript of the, I'm going to reveal my ignorance, for some reason it's, I'm blanking on whether this is the Declaration of Independence or the, or the Constitution, but we, the people of these United States, in order to form a more perfect onion, what if you found a manuscript that said that? You know, immediately you'd realize, oh, no, no, no. Okay, they meant union, and they accidentally closed the U, and it became an O. Well, that is frequently the kind of quote-unquote error that we have in the manuscripts. And if that's going to threaten someone's faith, I would pray for them. But I encourage them not to expect what God didn't promise. God did not promise a series of you know, a perfect manuscript line where every copy is is perfect. Even after printing, we have errors. So there's a famous 
edition of the King James Version that was made in the 17th century that was called the Wicked Bible because accidentally, or maybe some printer played a joke, it said, thou shalt commit adultery rather than thou shalt not commit adultery. (laughs) Humans are prone to error. This is the world we live in. Um, We have to deal with the very small amount of, of, of difficulty like this that that God has given us, and no, it doesn't. It doesn't change the the message of the Bible um, in any particular. I tend to use the NLT for casual reading, and the NASB for study itself. Is this typical? And what is what do you think is the best way to approach Bible study? I think that what you just described is the best way to approach Bible study, but it's unfortunately not as typical as it ought to be. And one of the purposes of my writing on this topic, both in my book and in many blog posts that I've written for the Logos Bible Software blog, and hopefully my next book, we'll see, is to encourage that practice to be more typical. I'd love to see more Christians who don't know a lick of Greek or Hebrew because God did not call them to learn it or give them opportunity to, and they should not feel embarrassed. I'd love to see them picking up multiple Bible translations. And what you've done is you've picked up one, the New Living Translation, that's what's called more functional or dynamic. You could use the word interpretive. That means it's easier to read. They're kind of smoothing over some of the more difficult verbiage. But when you're, and and when you are reading at a fast clip, you know, let's say you're in a class at a Christian college and you need to read 20 chapters of Genesis tonight. I was just reading a story about Elizabeth Elliot, how she had to do that when she was at Wheaton College. Well, the New Living Translation is a great one to pick up. But let's say you're in another class or you're in a Bible study and you're really wanting to dig down deep into what one verse in Romans 3 has to say about our justification and how Christ's death propitiated God's wrath toward our sin. You're going to want that really formal or literal translation, the New American Standard Bible. And it's not as if they're at two totally opposite ends of this, you know, vastly, uh, this huge spectrum. All translations use literal uh, translation philosophy as well as more functional translation philosophy. Uh, The NASB, the New American Standard, the ESV, the King James, the New King James just tend to be uh, tend to use the the formal and, and literal more often in the New Living Translation, maybe the New International Version. They tend to use the interpretive or functional translations more often, but both are useful. They're not contradictory. They're useful. Are there any translations uh, that we should really stay away from? There's kind of one infamous translation out there. The Jehovah's Witnesses have their New World Translation, and all appearances are that they have purposefully, self-consciously changed one key verse. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's how everybody else translates it. Uh, and they've, they've changed that so that it doesn't appear to, um, to make Christ deity, you know, equal with God, because that's their doctrine. You know, really, that's the only major well-known translation I would tell people to avoid. If there's a Bible translation on the shelf at your Christian bookstore, if your pastor uses it, if Christians you trust have a translation they're using, almost certainly it's just fine. Go ahead and pick it up and use it. It would also help you to pick up 
another book like How to Choose a Translation for All It's Worth by Theon Stewart, I believe, that describes the the what I've just been referring to earlier about the differences between literal and more dynamic translations. Uh, it would also be helpful for people to know that something like The Message, which is a paraphrase and not a translation, um, it'd be helpful for them to know that. They need to recognize that when Psalm 1 in The Message talks about the fool going off to smart mouth college, you know, that isn't in the Hebrew. That is a very highly interpretive rendering that's just meant to stoke your thinking in a creative way. He's not trying to say, you know, these are the words of the Lord. And that can be useful as long as you understand that's what he's doing. I, I really wouldn't warn people away from dangerous Bible translations. The Bible doesn't do that. Um, we, the, the major evangelical and even non-evangelical Bible translations out there in English, we, we just have an embarrassment of riches. Yes, I disagree with this or that rendering here or there, but overall, I still find them all very useful. And if you discover one of those things that I disagree with, I think that's just a great uh, spur to more Bible study. I don't think that you'll be harmed by reading different Bible translations that are major. As I turn around and look at my bookshelf right now, I can probably find four or five different translations and maybe one or two different copies of, of, of a few of those translations. So we, we, we certainly are not at a, uh, at a loss for Bibles in this country and in this culture. It does seem counterproductive to spend so much time and energy uh, on this subject uh, when, when, we should, uh, when we should be in the Bible. And not necessarily the Bible that you read is the Bi- is is the best Bible, but there's some truth to that, don't you think? I do. I really like that saying. People will say, "Okay, what's the best Bible translation?" It's whatever one you will read. It's whatever one God in His providence has put in your hands from trusted people. And you know, would that include the King James version? Well, yes, and it did for me for the first eighteen years of my life. That's basically what I read exclusively, and for a time, I was King James only, though because I went to a good church and where people were gracious, I I think I was not a jerk about it. Uh, I was not King James ugly, but um, I'm encouraging people, yeah, okay, God can still do great work in your heart if if all you ever read is the King James, Um, but in my book, Authorized the Use and Misuse of the King James Bible, I'm encouraging people not to use it exclusively and certainly not to insist that others use the King James exclusively um, because there are these things in English that have changed over time. But overall, yes, I agree with what you say. I wish we, I wish I didn't have to write this book. I wish I didn't have to write about this topic. I wish everybody just understood that there is an embarrassment of riches uh, out in all these great evangelical English Bible translations. But I think people can use a little help in their Bible study with some examples you know, how do I compare translations? How is, how is it going to help me to read multiple Bible translations? I'm convinced, Mark, that had I had only the King James Bible to read from as a non-believer when I was researching Christianity, man, I'm not sure I'd be able to, I, I would have made it through because it just frustrated me. It just frustrated me because I didn't understand the language. I didn't talk that way. I didn't hear that way. It just didn't feel authentic to me. We as Christians need to understand that uh, we're kind of all in this together. If we're if we're fighting about 
about translations. We're not doing the work of God. Uh, we're just massaging our own egos, I think. You know, there are disagreements among Christians that require our time and attention. Peter was confronted by Paul in Galatians 2 because he was not walking in step with the gospel. He was refusing to eat with Gentile believers. So there there will be and there need to be conflicts among Christians, no matter how sad that is. But I do, I'm with you. I so wish that Bible translations were not a scene of Christian conflict. I wrote a series of posts in which I tried to end translation tribalism, I called it. I think it is so very unfortunate. I agree with you. If you were to put together a Bible bundle for a new believer, what translations would you give them? Oh, I just love that question because everybody wants to know what's the best Bible translation? Which one do you recommend? And my answer is all the good ones. And now you're asking me, what are the good ones? Well, I would, I would say kind of what I said before that if you go to your Christian bookstore and you see Bibles on the shelf, more than likely those are the good ones. And let me, so before I name them, let me explain why that is. And that is that most of the major translations, I, I think I would say all the major translations that are available today have been done by committees. And that means that somebody went to the extreme expense and major trouble to form a committee to buy their sandwiches for week after week after week of their work, to fly them to colloquies where they can go over their work and revise it. And the Bible is a huge book. Um, the Committee for Bible Translation, which is responsible for the New International Version, has now been in existence for decades. Who is paying this bill? I mean, this is a very expensive and difficult undertaking. And that means that private individuals can't do it. And that means that private individuals with their, uh, what's the word I want? Idiosyncrasies are not going to come in and turn the Bible into their own pet project. Mm. Yes, people will always say committees are the worst for translation because, you know, too many chefs spoil the broth, but I, I just don't see that. I think that having a committee provides checks and balances. And what those committees will do is they'll put together Anglicans and Methodists and Presbyterians and Baptists, so, you know, evangelical people who believe the Bible, believe the gospel, but they come from different denominations so that it's not one denomination that's kind of all spinning things subtly, you know, anytime they get a chance, I'm going to spin this in a dispensationalist direction, or I'm going to spin this in a Baptistic or Presbyterian direction. No, that's not happening because it's multiple denominations getting together. I think that's a great, a great sign of what the Spirit is doing in the church, even if I have my disagreements with evangelical Anglicans, and of course I do. But I'm glad to work with them because I recognize uh, on a project like this, we stand underneath the Bible. We don't stand over it. It's not my denomination's scripture. It's God's word, and we are all submissive to it. So, okay, what committees have produced good translations? Well, I would name the ones you named earlier, the New Living Translation, the New International Version, the Christian Standard Bible, the English Standard Version. I think those would probably be the ones that I would pick out. I, I pick out four, make it manageable for a new believer. And maybe this, that even is a precocious new believer. That's probably the four I'd pick. And on a different day, I might pick a different four just so I don't fall into a rut. Uh, but those are some of the major ones that kind of hit different areas of the spectrum and uh, in, in a useful way. Mark, can we talk about your personal faith? 
Yes. How did you come to believe in Jesus Christ? Like a lot of children who grew up in Christian homes, I followed something of a common pattern. I made a profession of faith at age four, almost five. I remember riding in my dad's ancient white VW bug coming home from a church softball game that he was playing in. And I remember my father telling me that if you're going to follow Jesus, you know, you really have to follow him. And I thought in my little four-year-old concrete mind, okay, here's Jesus on a mountain path, and here's this long line of people and a big line behind him, and they're all, they're all following him. Uh, and I don't think that was so wrong, you know, that was just about right. But did I really understand? Did I really have my heart changed by God's new covenant through Christ and his blood? I, I just find it impossible to say. So sometime in my teenage years, when I was probably 14, maybe 15, and I was actually in later high school because I had skipped a grade, I went to Christian school all throughout and memorized lots of Bible verses in Awana and uh, in church and heard many sermons. But when I was about that age, 14 or 15, I suddenly independently desired to read my Bible and pray. And to get real frank for your audience right here, um, I suddenly wanted to take very seriously what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, and I'll name it, particularly about sexual lust. I saw that my society was pushing me uh, to disagree with Jesus, and it was at that point that I remember having to make decisions that my parents didn't and couldn't know about, whether I was going to follow Jesus' advice when he said, whoever lo- you know, looks at a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart, or was I going to follow the you know Yale Book of Home Medicine that we had in our house that I happened to find the place where it talked about this and it said that you know lust is a healthy good thing. Um, now sexual desire is a good thing. I knew that from my Bible even at that age, but um, lust is not. And looking back, I I think that's the the sign of God getting a hold of my heart. Was I saved then? You know maybe I don't know, but by that time at least. I was a true Christian. And beginning at that point, I have followed the Lord and I've grown in it. I certainly have not been perfect. You can ask my wife on the next interview. Um, <laughs> but I would say I have grown. I, I've seen the Lord operate in my life with real grace. You kind of drew your line. You, you became a Christian uh, in the formal sense, I guess you would say, as a very young person. Mm-hmm. Turning away from your life of sin, running down the aisle, and and uh, as a four year old, to uh, to turn from your wicked, evil ways, tongue in cheek, uh, right? But you, <laughs> but you, <laughs> but you drew the line in the sand. Uh, about fifteen years old. Have you ever had a time where you questioned your faith or even the existence of God? I did. Ironically enough, I was a senior in college, and I was a Bible major at a Christian college. And I was drilled in the Bible uh, you know, even more heavily at this college than I ever had been in my life. That's what I signed up for. It's what I wanted. But it's maybe about a three-month period. I, it's hard even now for me to piece it all together. I was preaching at a nursing home. Thankfully, it was the Alzheimer's unit, so nothing I said mattered. Um, to them, just being there was what was important and showing love to them. But I started to doubt. And, and it's this very uh, amorphous, ambiguous sense. 
you know, if the Bible is true, then I knew that what I was saying was from the Bible and it was an accurate representation of the Bible. And I still went to church myself and um, enjoyed the messages. My pastor of 18 years, um, and I was in the middle of that period then, um, he was an excellent Bible expositor. But I remember talking to my dad. I was very close to him and respected him. Of course, I still do. And um, just confessing, you know, I, I just feel like sometimes I'm not really sure I believe all this stuff. And as I recall, very busy with my school, you know, so busy, I could hardly even think about these doubts. I nonetheless talked to, of all people, an old girlfriend. And she uh, had become, you know, a friend again after several years of we didn't talk. And I said something about this to her. And what I remember her pointing me to was effectively Romans chapter one. You know, Paul says that the invisible things about God have been made visible by the creation, namely his eternal power and divine nature. And I thought, there's no way I can get around that basic sense that I have that intuitive sense that something doesn't come from nothing mm. and that that mind doesn't arise you know merely from matter and energy mind can only come from other mind um at least my mind could only come from other mind and other human minds same way you know that that sense never left me and so i was very glad to root my faith again not merely in experience some miracle that God did for me, let's say, and not merely in argument, although argument is involved. You know, Paul is definitely making an argument in Romans 1, but I, I rooted it in the direct knowledge of God that he says I'm so, supposed to get through creation. And I built on that foundation, and I've, by God's grace, never stepped off of it. Um, I I have a really good friend from kindergarten who is the nicest guy in the world and such a cool guy. And he's really smart. I always enjoy talking to him. He's an atheist. And I, I feel like I can't even understand where he's coming from because he just, he says to me over and over throughout the years, he feels perfectly happy and satisfied with the view of the world in which we all came from nothing and we're all headed to nothing. And I, I've never been able to accept that. And I look in my Bible and I see that I'm told I'm not supposed to accept that. And so I root my faith in scripture and what God has spoken directly to me. And yes, in the general revelation of creation, which God's special revelation, the Bible tells me I can rely on. Finally, as we wrap up, Mark, what would you say to that person that is right on faith's edge, making that choice to believe or not to believe in God? Wow, that's such a sobering question, and I come to it with some real fear because there's a responsibility that it lays on my shoulders to rep represent accurately what God would say. And I think I would, in part because of my experience, in part because of my knowledge of the Bible, I would say go to Romans and read that argument in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2. Go on into Romans chapter 3. You don't have to stop there. But if later in Romans, God says, faith comes through hearing, then I would say, you need to hear. Um, and I used to preach weekly 
to unsaved adults. They would come week after week to my little outreach ministry at my church. And I would say this to them, um, if you are not a Christian, and I can know that because the Bible says the immorality that you're practicing makes you not a Christian, then you need to go and beg the Lord in prayer to, um, to change your heart. Uh, you know, one of the reasons that I'm a, a believer, and this is wrapped up in the description of my life story that I just gave earlier, is that I find so much explanatory power in the Bible's picture of the new man versus the old man. The old man, Ezekiel 36, 36 says, has a heart of stone. That is when God walks into the room, as it were, his heart does not respond, doesn't beat. But the new man, the, the man of the new covenant, and of course the woman too, not just men, um, has a heart of flesh. That, that is, God has written his laws on that heart. And when God walks into the room, you respond. In other words, the essence of, of mankind and of every individual is your loving, not your thinking. And I see that around me everywhere. Your loving determines your thinking. So um, when, I, when I talk to non-Christians, I try to zero them in on what the Bible says is at the center of us, and that is our loves. And, and I want to ask them, you know, what are you loving? Are you loving things that are true and good and beautiful? Um, don't you see that there is a God of eternal power and divine nature and you have not been loving him? You need to ask him to give you a new heart of love for him. You know, maybe I'm presuming too much about um, how close they are to that edge. But those are the scriptural themes that I tend to want to bring up with people in that place. I don't think we can say anything more than this. Mark, thank you so much for hanging out with us tonight. The The book is Authorized, The Use and Misuse of the King James Bible. And whether you're a new believer, a non-believer, uh, or even a, a mature believer, I think this book is important, Mark, and I appreciate you writing it. Well, I really appreciate our conversation. And you know, I really enjoyed it because you got personal. You actually care about this stuff, about Bible reading and about my spiritual life and that of your listeners. And I do too. And I'll join you in prayer that this episode and others that you record will be fruitful and effective. God bless you, brother. Thank you. Authorized, the use and misuse of the King James Bible is on Amazon.com. Mark's website is ByFaithWeUnderstand.com. These links, as well as the other links, can be found in today's show notes at onfaithsedge.com slash 107. That's onfaithsedge.com slash 107. If you want to interact with me, I am most active on Twitter at at 4JoeTaylor. That's at F-O-R-J-O-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R, at 4JoeTaylor. Or you can contact me directly at onfaithsedge.com slash contact. I love bringing you engaging conversations about faith. If this show entertains you, encourages you, or brings value to you in any way whatsoever, would you consider financially backing the show by using any Amazon link on the website? We'll get a modest commission for the purchase, but it doesn't cost you a penny more. Well, that'll wrap up today's show. Thank you to Mr. Mark Ward for being with us, and thank you for listening. You mean a lot to me, and you mean a lot to this show. Remember, God is real. He loves you, and so do I. God bless. Thank you for listening to On Faith's Edge. You can subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher Internet Radio, or your favorite podcast app on Android, Apple, or Windows devices. 
To reach out to Joe or leave comments about the show, visit onfaithsurge.com. You're important to us and we would love to hear from you. 